Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use. And wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Hello again, this is Dr. Dyke Drummond at the home of The Happy MD in beautiful Seattle, Washington with the latest Physicians on Purpose podcast. And I'm really excited about this one. I have Dr. Heath Joliff, D.O. He is an emergency room doctor and a whole bunch of other things, including a physician coach. His website is physiciancoachingsolutions.com. No dashes, no dots, physiciancoachingsolutions.com. And I asked Heath to come on the show here because He just was a co-author of a fascinating study that went in depth into one of the stresses that can contribute to physician burnout. And in my teachings, we have five universal causes of burnout, the practice of medicine, your job, leadership, life, and the programming of our medical education. But there are also hundreds of additional stressors that can be the last straw and drive a person into burnout. And what we're going to talk about today is the whole issue of liability, malpractice, and how left hung out to dry we are by the complete absence of any training in these topics during our formal medical education and really no other source for it. So, so Heath, welcome to the program. And let me just ask you, tell me about your history, because I, I believe that you're an expert witness in some cases, and you've done some legal work. You're an ER doc, so you've been in and around this kind of, you're an educator. Tell us a little bit about how you decided to, to do this study. We'll walk through the study and walk through what you found. Thanks, Dyke, for having me and your interest in this. I have to give a lot of credit to my co-authors in this paper. And at the time, I was a program director, and we had seen a need uh, to teach residents about the medical legal system because, unfortunately, we just don't get a lot of that in medical school or often in residency. Um, my co-author and I had done some uh, medical malpractice work with attorneys, and we thought it would be interesting to invite some real attorneys to help us with this. So we had an attorney who defends physicians, an attorney who's a plaintiff's attorney. Uh, we hired some uh, folks that were uh, medical experts uh, to help us with this also. And then we used uh, chief residents uh, to be witnesses and uh, the, the people on trial. Uh, and our goal was to see, can we teach folks a little bit about the system that they don't have a lot of knowledge about, but often bring it up as a point of apprehension, fear, hey, what happens if I get sued, those type of things. And so we thought this would be a, a great way to do this and then to record it for other people to watch. So it's sort of like the twilight zone. Imagine, if you will, you're being sued. Let's step into the courtroom, Jim. Right. Absolutely. Something like that. Okay. So it's a full mock trial. Now, was there a script for the trial or was there just a premise? And then you went live into defending and and taking care of it. Yeah. We had actually used a case that had gone to trial and had had been finished. And so we used the real details of the case. Uh, This was a case on chest pain because we knew we'd have a lot of different groups of physicians. We had uh, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, medical students, and, and even attorneys who were, were watching. 
So we wanted it to be something fairly common that people would see, but also would understand. So our defending physician uh, had a couple weeks to look at the case, get the note of case, um, and the legal team did the same. And then uh, the case was presented. Uh, the only difference, we made this 90 minutes so that people could actually sit through the whole thing and watch it instead of you know a trial that may normally take a couple of days. And then we presented it in, in a compact fashion to go through these details so that people could understand what it would be like to actually be on trial or be a jury member in this trial. So 90 minutes. And then let me just ask real quick, because I'm sure there's people that are asking this right now. Is this publicly available? Can we watch the case? Is it mounted someplace for public viewing? It is. Um, so in our paper, that was one of the things we wanted to do is, is provide a link um, so that people could watch this. And uh, it, when we were collecting our data, uh, this was during COVID. So most people couldn't do this live. So we had to have a way for folks to be able to tune in and watch this. And we had uh, um, over 600 people who were able to view the conference. And we had some criteria that you had to watch the thing and answer some questions. And about 400 of those folks were able to do that. So we had over 400 people that actually met the criteria to be involved in the study, which was really nice. And I've got links to both the paper and inside the paper, the links to the viewing page. Uh, wherever you're listening to this or watching this right now, it's down below whatever frame you're looking at. So I'm in the virtual room. I'm watching this case unfold. I'm undoubtedly thinking about my own experience with patients and chest pain and, and all that kind of stuff. And let's just say, just as a preamble, liability is, is steeped through everything that we do. When the buck stops with you, when you're the one making the diagnosis, when you're the one responsible for the orders, and you're in the kind of top-down leadership structure of a clinical care team where nobody can actually do anything until you tell them to, and they're going to do exactly what you request, liability and thoughts of liability are in every decision that we make. And you certainly don't have to have a case and go to trial to feel stress from fears of malpractice and liability issues. You were telling me when we were talking before we started the recording that only about a third of doctors actually get sued. But I'm certain that everybody has liability issues on their mind much more frequently than that. Absolutely. I, I think it's always the case that doesn't go as well as what we'd hoped. Uh, maybe a, a complaint from a patient or a concern from you know a peer review, it generates that stress in your mind of, uh-oh, what did I do wrong? Or am I going to be sued? And, and how is this going to work? Because you know we're in the business of helping people. And the last thing we want to do is, is cause some type of harm or alleged harm. And so physicians, I think, are really concerned about this. And you know, as you know, we tend to be perfectionists. And this kind of adds to that stress, I think. Yep. So, so everybody got to watch the trial. And then what were your questions to the study group afterwards? What were the answers that it gave you to those inquiries? That's great. So the big question was, is the audience was this very large jury. And one of the questions that we wanted to know is you know, the lawsuit uh, alleged failure to diagnose of, a, of a, actually a, a myocardial infarction and a delay in that diagnosis. So the big questions that we wanted to know is, do you feel like the physician involved in this case met the standard of care? And uh, most people felt that they did. But then was the care excellent care? 
Is it something you would be proud of doing on your own? And that number dropped to half of the folks, Okay, (laughs) which was really interesting. It's like, met the standard of care, but I wouldn't be happy if that was my care or if I was the patient and received that care. So that was interesting. And then the question was, what would you change or would you consider changing anything if, you know, after watching this? And 72% of the people said, you know, I would probably change something in my clinical practice after watching that. And 93% of people said, I would change the way I document things in my medical record after watching this because in the trial, there were portions, just like any trial, you hope to document the best thing, but anything that comes up to peer review or legal, you always think, gosh, I could have documented that better so other people could understand. And I think that was the big message that people got was, I should probably look at how I document to make sure it's a little more clear to someone else reading my chart, not just me. So the general thought process was I should document more like I'm presenting it to somebody else rather than writing notes for myself. Correct. Especially when, you know, a lot of times trials may not happen for a year from now. And the question is, can you remember what you really did with this patient versus you know, this was an emergency medicine case. So versus all the other chest pains you see, does this stand out to you by your documentation or does it not? Gotcha. And then as you think back on the experience, now you've got a little distance on it. You've seen the whole feedback group. You've collaborated with a bunch of co-authors on the case. What's one thing that surprised you about the proceeding or the findings? Yeah. You know, I think the first thing that surprised us is how many people were interested to participate. It's a great topic, but uh, when we looked back in the literature, this was probably the most viewed trial by physicians ever, even though this was a mock trial. No doubt. So we were so happy to see that. Um, That helped us with our numbers. And also to what we learned is that a lot of people said, I don't really remember the class in medical school where I was taught to document. So (laughs) we were concerned about you know, the medical legal learning about that. But when you go back and you think about where was I ever taught how to correctly document, not just use the electronic medical record, but you know, what do I document versus what don't I document? How do I document against discrepancies? Because sometimes, you know, someone else, a nurse or a tech or another physician will say something in the chart that maybe you disagree with. How do I do that? And so I think that's a, that was a good thing for us to see that people were interested in that and thought they would change based upon that. Well, and I think that's the same class. The how to document class is the, is the one that was right after the class on how to lead a team. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Leadership we skills. Missed that day. <laughs> Leadership skills for physicians. Well, and Heath, just, just so you know, Heath is a graduate of our quadrupling physician leadership retreat. And one of the sections in that retreat is physician leadership power tools. So we actually do dissect a physician's command and control, give orders and comply leadership style and all the shortcomings of that. But yeah, what I teach typically is that if there's only three reasons to put something in the chart, the bill, medical legal, and continuity, which is that somebody else could pick up the chart and take that patient if you weren't there. If it doesn't have to do with those things, then it probably doesn't belong in the chart and you don't need to waste your time in in putting it in there. And that longer and more is never better. People want a concise note that they can pick up and run with. 
Do you have any advice for the listeners here about if there is a discrepancy? If I see something in the chart that somebody else has put in there that I want to disagree with, do you have any language or way that you've come up with to do that? Yeah, thanks for that question. That's good. So when I'm teaching residents, one of the things I look at is, you know, we always have that thing. If it wasn't documented, it wasn't done. We know that's not true. There's a lot of things we do that we don't document. But just what you said is maybe uh, a good question, a good example would be um, maybe at triage, a nurse has put down that the patient is having pain in their right lower abdomen, which makes everyone think of appendicitis. And when you examine them, the pain's actually on the left side of their abdomen. You know, I tell people, don't make it controversial. Just say, you know, at triage, the nurse noted the patient complained of pain in the right side of their abdomen. On my exam, they weren't having pain there. It was actually on the left. And patient agrees with that, you know, and it's just just a simple non-adversarial, just document what you see and, you know, because things change. Right on. Excellent. And then has this now been uh, stood up as a mandatory class for all the residents in the training programs you've been associated with? Is anybody actually using this as an ongoing resource? You know, that that's a great question and one I don't know. I think from the folks that were involved in our uh, study, yes. And as I was telling you before this, you know, most uh, law school programs do this to teach their law students about going to trial. And it just seems like this is something we should do. And I have a, a friend of mine who is a, uh, a attorney, and he was very surprised when I told him that this wasn't something that was common in medical school. And he looked at me very seriously over top of his glasses, and he said, it should be. And, right. I, and I agree. Well, and it's also a very foreign form of inquiry for physicians. So we're always asking questions. If you want, we're taking testimony from our patients, which could be a way to interpret it for a lawyer. But typically, we have some open-ended questions mixed in there, and we're looking to get to, looking to, get to a diagnosis that is not necessarily certain. It's a working diagnosis. It's a hypothesis. You put me on the stand, though, and put me in a trial, the lawyers are questioning in a completely different fashion. Many times their questions are closed into trap doors, and the doctor is having an emotional maelstrom on the stand while the lawyer is trying to win a point, win a case, win a verdict, win a settlement. And doctors, in my experience, uh, it's very easy to be completely destroyed and decompensate on the stand when you're faced with that kind of questioning, especially if you haven't had a chance to do a mock trial before you ended up in the courtroom. I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, it's out of our arena. Sometimes we we're not even familiar with the terminology that's being used in the courtroom. Um, the system is adversarial. You know, we want to help people. And uh, sometimes the opposing counsel is there to make you look like you don't care and that you're not there right. to help. And, and that makes people very hurt, angry. Um, you don't know what to do with those feelings. And so I think this is a good thing for, you know, I, I would like to see this involved in a lot of um, medical curriculum just because I think we were talking earlier, pilots are trained to meet all kinds of things in their training that disaster events that will probably never happen. And even if you say only one in three physicians have been sued, it would be nice for us to know a little bit about that because I think most physicians, regardless if they win or lose a case, it's not something that anybody wants to go through. And despite how rare it is, it, I think it's a good thing to train for. 
Yep. And even though only one in three are actually sued over the course of their career, all of us live in fear of it. That's correct. <laughs> it's, it's a clear and present danger in your mind, even if you end up having a career where you're not sued. Great. Any last thoughts about the study, the experience, anything else you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think, you know, the big thing is I had worked in another state where the medical malpractice insurance company actually required you to spend a day with a defense attorney oh my. Um, and look over your, your documentation and all these things. And, you know, when I had to do that, I thought, oh, this is going to be awful. It was probably <laughs> one of the best days of my career because they, we were allowed to bring in charts of our own and they would go through it and say, you know, you could state this better this way, or, you know, they would say, paint the picture, which I use that term a lot, paint the picture of what happened in your chart so that I can understand that as someone who is possibly on a jury, uh, that doesn't know a lot about medicine or even as an attorney. And the other thing is, you know, this is about patient safety too. It's, you know, what can we do to change our practices to make things safer for our patients? And, you know, some of that comes from documentation and some of that comes from just the way we practice and what we do to make sure that that's an obvious thing that we're, you know, because that's our, that's our job. We're here to look out for patients and to protect them as well as ourselves and our colleagues. So uh, what can we do to make that happen in a better fashion? Right on. Thank you, Heath. This has been Dr. Heath Joliffe, emergency room doc. Emergency program, were you a program director? Program director. Program director, expert witness, physician coach. His website is physiciancoachingsolutions.com. No dots, no dashes. Physiciancoachingsolutions.com. And we've been talking about a study of the self-reflection that is driven by witnessing a mock malpractice trial by a team of doctors and residents. Fascinating stuff. Links to the study and to the actual video mock trial are in the notes down below, wherever you're getting this podcast. He thanks so much again. And this is Dyke Drummond at the home of the happy MD in beautiful Seattle, Washington. That's this edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Be safe, keep breathing, have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Dyke. That was great. 